We are in Acts chapter 20 today. If you want to grab your copy of the sermon notes in your bulletin inserts, and you'll make notice of the fact that the sermon notes today are double-sided. That's a good clue for you that you are in trouble. Whenever the sermon notes are double-sided, that you know that you're in for it. Also, in addition to that, I'm aware of the fact that we have a fellowship lunch after the service, which means that none of you have to get home and cook dinner or go stand in line at a restaurant. So I get an extra 45 minutes, and that still means that you eat at the same time you normally would eat anyway. Right? Just kidding. Acts chapter 20 is where we are today. You know, Acts is an awesome, awesome book, is it not? It is awesome not just in the sense that it is teaching us so many great theological truths, truths about the birth of the church and the growth of the early church and how the early church existed and what they believed and what they taught, but also truths about global missions, world evangelism, all these great theological truths are being taught to us. But in addition to that, it's not just that we are learning so much about the work of the Spirit and the early church, but we're also being entertained as well because Acts... If nothing else, Acts is an entertaining book. Not all of the books of our Bible are equally entertaining. Think of books like Leviticus or Deuteronomy. Those books have a lower entertainment value than some other books like the story of Jonah or the story of Esther, for example. The Kings and the Samuel books or Genesis, those books are very entertaining to us. Now, I'm not implying that God's purpose in His Word is to entertain us. But I am acknowledging the fact that God is capable of teaching us and entertaining us at the same time. Which is what He is doing in the story of Acts. Because Acts, I think, towers above all the other books of our Bible in entertainment value. Have you noticed all the things that are going on? The story that Luke is telling us. Just last time, we were all chuckling at this guy Eutychus. This young fella who's there, Paul is preaching, they're on the third floor room, and it's getting hot and stuffy, and all these torches are in the room, and the oxygen is getting depleted and everything, and ladies are fanning and everything. And Eutychus gets all sleepy, he goes to the window, because Paul is just preaching and preaching and preaching, and it gets to midnight, he goes over, sits in the window to get some air and kind of wake up, but he instead falls into this dead sleep, literally a dead sleep, falls out the third floor window to his death, Paul comes down, lays on top of him, raises him back to life, goes back inside, finishes preaching the rest of the night until the sun comes up. Now, if you don't find the humor in that, then, I'm sorry, you need to work on your sense of humor. But then immediately after that, notice how Paul, I mean, I'm sorry, Luke is just going to turn us on a dime. Because last time we were laughing at Eutychus, this time we'll be crying with Paul. And Luke can do that because Luke is a fantastic storyteller. You ever notice that that is something that good movies and good stories just have in common. A good movie, for example, will not just give us one emotion. A good movie is not all sad. That would be depressing. A good movie is not all playful and, and, and happy and funny. That would just be silly. But a good movie can evoke from us all of that range of emotions. And a really good movie can change it on a dime. And that's exactly what Luke is going to do today because today we have a very sad, a profoundly sad goodbye story, a farewell event. This is a farewell between Paul and the Ephesian elders who are parting ways never to see each other again and they know it as they're 
parting ways, that this is the last time that they'll ever see each other. And so as we read this, think of this as a, as a, as a grand goodbye scene. Kind of like Joshua's goodbye address or Samuel's farewell address or even the farewell address of Jesus in the upper room. John 13 through John 17. This is going to be a profoundly sad moment for Paul and the Ephesian elders. And as I'm thinking through this, one thing that I kept coming back to was just some of those really good goodbye scenes that you have seen in some of the classic movies, some of the great movies that have just a really profoundly touching goodbye scene. I'm thinking, um, as I was thinking this week, I was thinking of Casablanca. Remember the goodbye scene in Casablanca? At the airport, Humphrey Bogart and Ingrid Bergman. You've got to get on this plane. If you don't get on this plane, you will regret it. Maybe not today, maybe not tomorrow, but soon and for the rest of your life. Remember that whole scene? She gets on the plane, never to see each other again. This is like that. Only even more profound, I believe. So let's read through this. We're going to have to break the passage up into two sections just in order to be able to handle it. But let's read the whole section together. I'm going to begin with verse 13 and I'm going to read through the end of the chapter. That's the complete story of Paul's farewell, but we'll, we'll not cover all of that today. There's just simply too much for us to cover in one day. So let's just begin in verse 13 and read through the end of the chapter. But going ahead to the ship, we set sail for Assos, intending to take Paul aboard there. For so he had arranged, intending himself to go by land. And when he met us at Assos, we took him on board and went to Metilene. And sailing from there, we came... The following day, opposite Chios. The next day we touched at Samos. And the day after that, we went to Miletus. For Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus so that he might not have to spend time in Asia. For he was hastening to be at Jerusalem, if possible, on the day of Pentecost. Now from Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. And when they came to him, he said to them, You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews, how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to the Jews and to the Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now behold, I am going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not account my life of any value nor as precious to myself. If only I may finish my course in the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the Gospel of, the, of grace of God. And now behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Therefore I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all of you, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which He obtained with His own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the Word of His grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the, the inheritance among the, all those who are sanctified. I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. You yourselves know that these things ministered to my necessities 
and to those who were with me. And all things I have shown you that by, the work, by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how He Himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. And when He had said these things, He knelt down and prayed with them all. And there was much weeping on the part of all. They embraced Paul and kissed him, being sorrowful most of all because the word he had spoken that they would not see his face again. And they accompanied him to the ship. So as we read through this farewell address, this farewell speech that Paul gives, again, we're going to have to break this into two sections just in order to kind of manage through here this, this section. But even as we're sort of taking a cursory read through it, if you listen to that story and you did not connect with it in a sad way, if you, if you looked at that with some sort of sterile disconnection, and let me say that you missed the point of the story because this is a profoundly sad moment in the lives of Paul and the Ephesian elders. They know that they'll never see Paul's face again. He's told them so much. They don't know exactly what's in store for Paul in Jerusalem, but they know that it's going to end in a bad way. And so they're profoundly sad. I don't know if you've ever been in that situation with someone that you cared for very deeply. You were parting. And you knew that you would never see that person again. I don't know if you've ever been in that situation. But this is a profoundly sad moment for Paul and for the Ephesian elders. So what we're going to do is we're going to take this goodbye speech that he gives and we're going to break it up into two chunks. And I'm just going to kind of generalize the whole speech in a very, very broad sort of way. But basically, verses... 13 down through verse 27 is mostly about Paul and how he's describing his witness to them and his example to them. And then verses 28 through verse 34, that's mostly about the Ephesian elders, how he's charging them to care for their example before the churches that they with the church that they lead. Now there's a lot of overlap there, and that's a very broad generalization of this whole passage. But that'll kind of help us to, to get a handle on the first section here. The first section Paul is going to be talking mostly about his example to them. Because as we all are probably aware, it is rare that a church is able to rise above its leaders in godliness and holiness. I'm sure that's possible. I'm sure it can happen. After all, God is the sanctifier of men and women. But the experience that I have always had is that a church is never able to rise above the level of its leadership in holiness and godliness. And so therefore, for that reason, Paul's example to the Ephesian elders is paramount importance. As he leads them in godly ways, they are looking to him as their earthly leader. And it is not likely that they will rise above Paul in godliness. Likewise, their example to their church is also of paramount importance because their example of godliness will be the guide for their church. And again, certainly possible, but it's not likely that a church is going to rise above its leadership in holiness and in godliness. So their example is very, very important. This is not a section to be discounted or to be discredited in any way because the example of Paul to the Ephesians, to the Ephesian elders, and the example of the Ephesian elders to their church is also directly applicable to us today. So, as we look at Paul's speech here, we see here that he is going to give us basically four areas in which he's going to commend his example to them. The area of his humility, his call to proclaim the Gospel, his utmost trust 
and God and His innocence before them or His priorities before them. So that's kind of what we'll be looking at this morning. Before we get there, Luke does have a little bit of bridge work to do for us. And we know that Luke does this from time to time as he's narrating the story. Sometimes he has to get Paul or the main character from one place to another. And so he'll narrate a whole lot of events in just a couple of sentences, not intending to give us a lot of information, but just basically get Paul, in this case, from Troas to Miletus. And so in just a couple of verses here, he takes Paul on this journey, leaving Troas to go up to Miletus. And we see here a couple of rather strange things about it. First of all, Paul's travel plans seem a little bit odd. Paul arranges for all the others that he's with to go by boat while he himself goes the first leg of the journey on foot. It's a five-day journey on boat. And the first day, Paul walks that from, uh, from Troas to Athens. That's a walk of 20 miles. Wouldn't have been a very difficult walk for people, especially people of that day. So it wasn't, wouldn't have been a difficult walk, but instead of sailing that first leg, Paul meets the boat there at the first stop. We're not told why. But the only thing that we can, we can really assume is that probably Paul wanted that time for himself. He just needed to be alone, and so he walked that distance by himself in order to seek solitude with God as he walked. He has just left Troas, and a lot of things happened in Troas. He spent a week there with the Croatian Christian. He raised Eutychus from the dead. So a whole lot has happened. He just needs to be alone and he just needs to meditate with God. And so he seeks this opportunity. He would rather walk 20 miles and have that time with God un un uninterrupted, so to speak, rather than sail the first leg of the journey. Reminds us a lot, I think, of Jesus who consistently went out of His way in order to find time of solitude with the Father. He would get up early in the morning, or in many cases, he would pray through the whole night because that was the only time that he could find solitude, that he could be alone with God because he was so pressed during the day to minister to the people that were around him. Paul's very similar in this way. He's very pressed for his time. A lot of people need Paul's time, but Paul needs time with the Father. And so Paul will do whatever he has to do in order to be alone with the Father. I think this is a very important example for us today because our culture will do everything it can to keep you from having time alone, especially time alone with your thoughts or time alone with God. Now, I know that some elderly folks, you, you're at a stage in your life where you have a lot of time on your hands. But for the younger folks that are here in me, our culture, we're so connected today. Facebook and Twitter and text messages and email and so, so much going and coming and so many activities and things to do that you will never just find yourself with time. Because our culture will fill up every bit of your time and more. And let me just urge you to consider your time as the most valuable commodity that you have. You must guard that time alone with God. You must do whatever you need to do if it means less sleep at night, if it means sacrificing some activity, whatever it may mean, you need to fiercely guard that time alone between you and God. If Paul needed it, and if Jesus needed it, then who are you to think that you can get by without it? And that you can be godly and that you can be holy without a consistent daily time alone with the Father. This is what I, I see that Paul is probably doing during this first day to ask us. But then he meets you up again with the boat. And then they travel another four days. And then the next 
unusual thing that happens is that Luke tells us that Paul purposely avoids Ephesus. And he doesn't want to go into Ephesus. And we know that there's a church in Ephesus. And he, instead of going to the church, he calls the, uh, the elders of the church and meet him at this place, Miletus. So it seems a little bit odd that Paul is avoiding Ephesus. We're told why he's avoiding Ephesus. That the reason he's avoiding it is for time constraint reasons. Because he is pressed to get to Jerusalem by the day of Pentecost. Now we know that Paul was in Philippi for the Passover. And we know that just after the Passover, he was in Troas. And so we add all this up. Paul sailed for five days from Philippi to Troas. He spent seven days in Troas. Then he's now walked one day and sailed four days to Miletus. That's a total of 17 days. We also know that between Passover and Pentecost are 50 days. So 17 days have passed, meaning Paul only has 33 more days to get to Jerusalem if he's going to be there for the day of Pentecost. So time is running short for him. He's pressed for time. I'm sure you can relate to that. You've had some place that you've got to be and you're watching the clock, or in Paul's case, he's watching the calendar because things happen a little slower in those days. But he's watching the calendar and he's got to be somewhere and he's running out of time. And so he makes the decision not to go into Ephesus because you know how it goes. He's going to go to the church in Ephesus and he's just going to find that he just can't tear himself away. And he's going to end up, end up spending more time there than he has to spend there. You ever done that? You want to stop by and see a brother and sister that's sick or has been uh, shut in and, and you want to stop by and see them, but you've got some place to be and you know if you stop that you're, just, you're not going to pull yourself away in time. To get, so, you have to, so that's what Paul is doing here. Not that he doesn't want to see the church, of course. But he stops in Miletus and he calls the elders in Miletus, or the, the elders in Ephesus, to come to Miletus and meet with him here. Now, this word elders in verse 17, it's the word presbyteros. Um, it speaks of a, a body of men who are the spiritual leaders of that church. We don't, we don't have the equivalent of it here, um, but it's not the same as the deacons. The deacons, we've we heard about in Acts 6. In Acts 6, the deacons were, were created. They were to oversee the, the uh, physical needs of the church. Remember, the whole, that whole thing came out of the, the widows who were being neglected in the food and the giving out of the food. The elders are, are men who are appointed by Paul, in this case, to be the spiritual leaders of the church. And we see here that clearly it's plural, and there's only one church in Ephesus, so the church in Ephesus has more than one of these elders. And they are the spiritual leaders. Likely, uh, it would have been likely that one of them would have been sort of the lead elder or the head elder. He would have been the pastor. And then this other group of men who were the spiritual leaders of the church. Paul calls to them and they come here and meet with Paul in Miletus. And they will be the ones who are the recipients of this speech that Paul gives to them. Now we know in the book of Acts that there are a lot of speeches and a lot of sermons. We talked about that as we started out. How that is... That is really the basis that Luke is teaching us the theology of Acts is through all these sermons that we're hearing. But this is unique in all the story of the Acts because this is the only case in which we are told the words of a speech or a message or a sermon that is spoken to believers. In every other case in Acts, the sermon that we're hearing is always either a sermon to unbelievers to try to convince them of salvation or it's a speech to unbelievers to plead for their release or their, or their innocence or whatever the case. But in all those cases, they're speaking to unbelievers. This is the only instance in which we are, we are given the words that are spoken 
to a group of believers. And so we see here in verse 17, verse 7, or I'm sorry, verse 18, when they came to him, he said to them. And so then begins this whole message that he speaks to them. And we said earlier that this is, Paul's going to say a whole lot here. He's going to cover a lot of ground. And so we'll just make those general sort of categories there. He's going to talk first about his humility. He's going to talk about his call to preach and proclaim the gospel. He's going to talk about his complete trust in the Spirit. He's going to talk about his witness to them, his innocence in the sense that, that he has declared the full gospel to them. So we begin here in verse 18 with Paul's humility. Verse 18, you yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility. Paul was a humble man serving those that he served with great humility. We know of the many instances that, that God's Word tells us of the humility of Paul. In your sermon notes, for example, he says to the Corinthians, I'm the least of the apostles. He says to the Ephesians, I'm the least of all the saints. He says to Timothy that he's the foremost of sinners. So Paul was a very humble man serving those that he served with great humility. However, does it seem a little strange to you that Paul is telling others of his own humility? Does that seem a little strange when you read Bible characters that talk of their own humility? Doesn't it seem kind of counterproductive in sort of a way? Remember Moses, Numbers 23, verse 5? When uh, we read the words about Moses, that Moses was the most humble man to live. You know who wrote those words? Moses wrote those words. Doesn't it seem kind of strange that Moses is telling us that he's the most humble man ever to live? Or Paul saying to the Ephesian elders, I served you with humility. I think that seems strange to us because I think that we often fail to understand biblical humility. I think that we often get biblical humility confused with something with, the, with, this, with an idea that our modern culture has invented. An idea called low self-esteem. And I think that we often confuse biblical humility with thinking lowly of ourselves. Almost despising ourselves. And so that truly humble people actually just need a boost of self-esteem. Right? And so we think of humble people as people who, who just loathe themselves or think very lowly of themselves. And so for that reason, when it seems strange to us that Paul would say to the Ephesian elders, Hey, I served you with humility if we understand that what Paul is meaning that I thought lowly of myself. Because in saying this, it's almost as though he's telling them something positive about himself. So the two sort of conflict there. But that is not biblical humility at all. Biblical humility is not thinking lowly of ourselves. Biblical humility is rather thinking, first of all, properly of ourselves. Like Paul will say to the Romans in Romans 12, Verse 3, this is in your sermon notes. That by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought. Paul doesn't say there, nor, nor does Scripture say anywhere else, that we should loathe ourselves. Paul, the Scriptures will often tell us that we should be ashamed of our action and our sinfulness. But Paul says to the Romans, you should think properly of yourself, meaning not too highly. You should not think overly highly of yourself. So first of all, biblical humility is a proper view of oneself that doesn't think too highly of oneself 
But then the other side of that is that biblical humility thinks more highly of others than you do of yourself. That's what Paul's telling us in Philippians chapter 2. There's nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility, count others as more significant than yourself. So it's not so much a thinking lowly of myself as it is thinking more highly of others. I consider others more significant and others as more important than me. I think high, more highly of others than I do myself. But here's the other part of it. And I think this is really where the rubber hits the road. Biblical humility is not so much thinking lowly of myself as it is really not thinking of myself at all. In other words, biblical humility is being so consumed with others that you just sort of forget about yourself. Does that make sense? You ever been so busy with something? Something that was urgent and important that you forgot about something that was less urgent and less important? You guys probably experienced a whole month of that, didn't you? All these important things that you're trying to take care of. And in the process, you may have forgotten about some less important things. That's the way it often goes, is that we can be so consumed with that which is important and urgent that we forget about that which is less important. And so Paul says to us, if we think properly of ourselves and consider others more important than ourselves, then we'll be more consumed with thinking of them, or as Paul will say in verse 25, thinking of Christ and the Gospel of Christ and these Ephesians as I'm ministering to them. I spend so much time thinking of them that I literally don't have time to think for myself. Don't have time to think of my own needs and, and those things that I would want. Those things, it's not like they, they become so much unimportant as they just become unthought of. And so I'm not thinking lowly of myself. It's not as though I'm insulting myself or putting myself down. It's that I'm too busy thinking of others to consume myself with thinking of me. And so therefore, Paul is absolutely right to say to the Ephesian elders, I serve you with humility. Because that's how I served you. Thinking of you more than thinking of me. Considering you more significant than me. That's why Moses can say, I'm the most humble man alive because I spend my time thinking of others much more than I spend thinking of myself. You know how, you know how that goes against our culture today, by the way? The, the, the very idea, not only that you consider other people more important than you, but that you spend more of your time thinking of others than you do thinking of yourself. That's quite an anti-cultural idea. Now, if you focus on that understanding of humility, I think you're going to admit what I'm about to admit to you. I'm not a humble person. I spend way too much time thinking about me. That's just a fact. It's just where I am in my faith journey with God is that I know and I understand. I spend too much time thinking of me and what I would like and what I would want. And so I think that you would probably admit with me that humble is probably not a characteristic that you would describe of yourself. But here writes Paul in the inerrant, inspired Word of God, I served you with humility. Notice also who he served. He says in verse uh, 19, he says in verse 19, serving the Lord with all humility. But in verse 18, he just told them about how he served them. I was in Asia serving you, serving the Lord with all humility. You see how, you see how fluidly Paul can go back and forth between serving the Ephesians and serving God? Because to him, they're the same thing. He gets it that to serve the Ephesians 
is the same thing as serving God. He understands the concept that Jesus taught us in Matthew 25. Whatever you've done unto me, you've done to the least of you. You've given me a cup of cold water, or if you've given one a cup of cold water in my name, to the least of these, you've done this to me. Do you know how profoundly radical that was for Jesus' day? That was not taught in the Old Testament, by the way. The Old Testament did not have that concept of what we do to people is the same thing as doing it to God. Which, by the way, this is just a side note. I don't think there was a greater declaration of the divinity of Jesus than when He said in Matthew 25, what you do to other people, you do to me. Because in the, in the Jewish way of thinking, they'd never thought that way before. That as we serve poor people, we're serving you because you're God. That was, that was revolutionary. But Paul gets that concept that to serve people in the name of Christ is the same thing as serving God. Which is why he'll write to the Colossians. Colossians 3, verse 23, to work heartily as unto the Lord. He gets that concept. Let me, let me suggest to you that you spend some time meditating on that concept. That what we do to others is the same thing as doing it to God. We've had, over the past few weeks, several instances in which my wife and I just will we'll talk about just different situations in which we were treated very rudely by other Christians. And, and we'll talk about that say, did you... Did you see what happened, what so-and-so said, and what so-and-so, what so-and-so did? And they are supposedly believers, like us, and treating fellow believers in that way. Let me just encourage you to really meditate on that thought. As we treat others, that is how we treat God. I think if that concept is pressed upon our minds, most of us would see a radical change in, in how it is that we deal with others around us. So Paul says here that there's really no difference. He says, I'm serving the Lord with all humility, the tears and trials that happened through me through the plots of the Jews. And then he's going to begin this section where he's talking about his calling to proclaim the Gospel. He's going to begin here, verse 20, how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable. And uh, verse 21, testifying both to the Jews and Greeks of repentance... And then we drop down to verse uh, 25. We see this whole, the same theme being continued. And behold, I know now that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face. Verse 27, I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. And he's going to continue that through the rest of the speech that we won't, the part that we won't look at today. But he has this overarching theme, the theme that he is called to proclaim the gospel. That's the calling that is placed upon him. He, he, claimed, he tells us here in verse 27 that he did not shrink from declaring the whole counsel of God. As he says up in verse 21, uh, 20, I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable. So he's telling us here, that, or he's telling the Ephesians rather, that I held nothing back. I declare to you the full counsel of God. My declaration to you, my preaching and my teaching, was not on the parts of God's Word that I like or that I know best or that I'm most comfortable with or that make us feel good. I preach to you the whole counsel of God. And folks, that is so important. Can I just make a, a huge understatement to say that is so important? Preach and teach the whole counsel of God. As I look around at the state of Christianity in our culture, 
What I consistently see are problems that I believe are all traceable to the failure to preach and teach the whole counsel of God. I see so many bodies of believers that are having this issue or that issue or this problem or that problem. And you can look, at, look into that just a little bit deeper and sort of peel back the surface and you see how all of that came about not by preaching error, but just by preaching truth out of balance. By spending too much time on certain truths that you liked and not enough time or zero time on the parts of Scripture that balanced that out. We're looking at 2 Corinthians now on Sunday nights. And, and the huge problem in, second, in uh, the Corinthian church is traceable to the fact that it wasn't so much that they were being taught falsehood as it was that they were being taught, taught truth out of balance. They were being taught certain truths to the exclusion of other truths. And they were saying the whole time, see, that's what God's Word teaches. Well, yeah, you're right. That is what God's Word teaches. But it's not all that God's Word teaches. It balances that out over here. And that's why it's so important that the whole counsel of God is preached and taught to God's people. You know what? There's only one way I know how to do that. There's only one way I know how to preach the whole counsel of God. That's just open it up and start. And just go through it. I don't know how to do it any other way. And I know that there are many who this Sunday is on this, and that Sunday's on that, and we're over here. I'll be honest with you. I'm just not spiritual enough to do that. I'm just not spiritual enough to on a week-by-week basis discern what God has for you. I don't trust myself. I don't trust my own closeness with the Spirit to say, all right, each week, Spirit, you give me what they need. The only thing I know how to do is just open God's Word and just go through it. All of it. That way we know we're getting the whole counsel of God. Now, I'm not saying that, that those that do that are unspiritual and they're not teaching the whole counsel of God. I'm just saying, hey, this is one way to be sure we get the whole counsel of God. By teaching all of it. Because the whole counsel of God is what keeps us in balance. you know how many truths are found in God's Word that if we pulled out that truth and this truth over here and just made that the whole focus of everything we do? You know how, how far we would get from the path of God? And it's all God's truth. And we say, well, okay, that's what God's, words te- that's what God's Word teaches. Well, yes, but it's not balanced. That's why I'm very careful. You know, a lot of times you'll see people that will have a life verse. And there's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with that. But they'll have a sort of a life verse and they'll say, this verse defines me. Well, all of God's Word should define you. Not just one particular part of God's Word, but one particular aspect of God's Word that speaks to you in a particular way. So, the whole counsel of God's Word is what Paul has taught to them. But then we notice here how he sees himself. He sees himself as a proclaimer of the truth of God's Word. Look at verse uh, 25. And now behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom. Proclaiming the kingdom. Focus on that phrase for just a moment. Proclaiming the kingdom. In that phrase, proclaiming the kingdom, Paul is speaking of this idea that he is an official herald of the truth of God. You know what a herald is? Anybody know what a herald is? I mean the newspaper. A herald 
The term goes way back into the ancient world. A herald was the official distributor of the king's word. The king would make a declaration, the king would make an announcement, the king would make a new law, a new tax, or whatever. And it wasn't the days of internet and email. They couldn't mail it out to everybody. They had to get the official word out, and so the king had official heralds. And those heralds would go out to the villages, and they would proclaim the official word of the king. They weren't proclaiming their word. They were proclaiming the king's word. And Paul sees himself as a herald of God's Word, proclaiming the, uh, the official Word of the Kingdom of God. So he says to them, I proclaim to you the official Word of God. Now, here is one instance in which we just talked about the balance of God's Word, right? Here's one instance where this is important. There's a difference between being a herald and being a witness. What does a witness do? A witness tells you what they've experienced, what they have seen, what they have encountered. That's what a witness does. Does Scripture call us to be witnesses? Absolutely. We are called to be witnesses to tell others what God has done for us. However, if all you are is a witness, and all the unsaved people that you ever talk to in your life, all you tell them about is what God has done for you, do you want to know what they hear? Here's what they hear. Alright, that's. I'm really glad that God has done that for you. I'm really glad you found that happiness in your God. I found happiness in mine. Isn't this great? That's exactly what they hear. And I can tell you that because I, I've experienced that countless times. If all you say to unbelievers is what God has done for you, wonderful. That's a, that's a nice subjective testimony. I'm glad that you have found that in your life. I'm also glad that I found my happiness in my life. So, we cannot only be witnesses. We must also be heralds. Because we must also say, besides what God has done for me, here is the objective, official Word of God. John 14, verse 6. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to me except by the, or no one comes to the Father except by me. That's the objective truth. That's the official Word of the King. Our testimony must include both. Because if all, all our testimony includes is the official word, if we're only heralds, then what non-believers hear is judgmentalism, uh, harshness, and I don't want any part of that. Or if all they hear is the testimony part, well, that's nice, you know, warm fuzzies, let's just sort of all celebrate our gods together. They must hear both. This is what God has done for me, and here's what He says to you. And so Paul sees himself as both. Both a witness and the herald proclaiming the kingdom of God. And so then we see here, um, Paul's going to move now to verse 20, 22. He's going to move to, the, to the, this idea of his complete and total trust in God. Look at verse 22. And now behold, I'm going to Jerusalem constrained by the Spirit. That's, the, I think, the third time that we've been told that Paul was constrained by the Spirit. Constrained by the Spirit not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. So he knows that whatever is going to happen to him in Jerusalem is going to be a bad way. He knows that whatever happens there will not be pleasant. Ephesians know this. And yet he still goes. 
He goes because He's already died. You see, Paul died on the Damascus Road. And the person who's speaking now is Jesus. And that's what Paul says in Galatians 2, verse 20, right? I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And so because Paul has died on the Damascus Road, and whatever life he now lives, he lives in Christ, he therefore has no decision to make. It's not as though Paul has to contemplate this, you know? i got a bad feeling about Jerusalem. What should I do? No discussion. He's constrained by the Spirit because he has died already to himself. And it is Christ who now lives in him. There's a story that's told about a man named James Calvert. James Calvert, about 150 years ago, was a missionary to the Fiji people. If you know anything about the Fiji Islands, you know that today Fiji is a paradise on earth. People love to go to Fiji. Not so 100 years ago. 100 years ago, you stayed away from Fiji because the Fiji people were ruthless cannibals. They were aggressive cannibals. And so, James Calvert assembled a mission team, missionary team from England, and they set sail for the Fiji Islands to be missionaries to the Fiji people. And in those days, of course, traveling from England to Fiji was about a six-month journey. So he's on this, he and these other missionaries are on this ship sailing to the Fiji Islands to be missionaries to the Fiji people. Meanwhile, the captain of the ship, who's now going to spend a lot of time over the next six months with James Calvert and his friends, the captain of the ship was unsaved. Didn't know Jesus. Was the typical ship captain of that day. However, over those months, he got to know James Calvert and the, the, the ministry, the witness, and the proclamation of James Calvert had an effect on this, on this captain in such a way that he was converted to Christ. And so the ship's captain gets saved. So his missionary work has begun even before he gets to Fiji. So the ship's captain is saved. And after being saved, he now becomes burdened for his friend, James Calvert, and his friends. And so he begins trying to convince Calvert to not go. Because as a ship's captain, he's very familiar with the Fiji people. So he's telling Calvert, listen, go somewhere else. There's plenty of other people. Go somewhere else. Don't go to Fiji. You and your friends will be killed. And Calvert replies, we died before we left England. We died before we left England. How are they going to kill us? We're already dead. We're now alive in Christ. You see, no decision. This is Paul. Paul died on the Damascus Road. And so now he goes to Jerusalem constrained to go to Jerusalem even though Jerusalem is harm. But Jerusalem is pain for him. Reminds you of Jesus, doesn't it? Even though he knew what Jerusalem held for him, he was constrained to go to Jerusalem. So Paul has this Incredible trust in God, but also, lastly, for this morning, we see Paul is going to declare his innocence to them. Look at verse 26. We'll kind of flesh this out. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of you all, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Certainly, Paul has in mind the passage from Ezekiel two times in Ezekiel, it comes, the watchman passage. Ezekiel 33 is in your notes. Verses 1-8. through 8. I won't take the time to read that passage. You can read it on, on your own, but I'm just going to paraphrase it in just a few moments. In Ezekiel 33, God says to Ezekiel, Ezekiel, you are a watchman 
I appoint you as a watchman over my people. And here's what a watchman is responsible for, Ezekiel. When a watchman sees danger coming, he must sound the alarm. And when he sounds the alarm, if the people don't listen, and they are the enemy falls upon them and kills them, well, they're dead, but you have done your duty. You are innocent of their blood. You can't control their response. However, Ezekiel, if the watchman sees the enemy coming and fails to sound the alarm, the enemy will fall upon them. They'll still be dead. But you will now be responsible. Their blood will be on your head. Because that's what a watchman does, Ezekiel. A watchman is responsible not for the response of the people that he warns, but he's responsible that he warns them. That's the whole point of Ezekiel 33. Paul sees himself as the watchman. He sees that it is his responsibility to warn people of the coming danger, the danger of damnation, the danger of, of, of the judgment of God. So he sees himself as a watchman and he declares to the Ephesians, I'm innocent of your blood because I have declared to you the whole counsel of God. However you respond to that is up to you. I can't make you respond in any particular way. However, I am responsible that I do everything that I possibly can to warn you. Paul sees himself clearly here as the watchman. And in this is a principle that I think it's helpful for us to remind ourselves of. It's the principle that whatever we receive from God, we are responsible for giving to others. It governs more than just the issue of salvation and telling others of the Gospel. Whatever we receive from God, Scripture tells us we are responsible for giving that same thing to others. God gives us grace. We're to be sources of grace for other people. God gives us mercy. We are to be merciful to other people. God gives us forgiveness. We are to be forgiving to other people. Whatever God gives you in your life, you are to be not a reservoir for that. You're just to be like a river. And the grace of God is to just flow through you to others. Now, not the least of which is salvation. None of us can save anybody. But when the gospel of salvation comes to us, we are then made responsible for telling it to others. Let me connect together this passage with Romans chapter 1, verses 14 and 15. This is on the back of your sermon notes. Romans 1, 14 and 15. Paul says, I am under obligation both to Greeks and barbarians, both to the wise and the foolish, so I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. Paul says, I am under obligation to preach the gospel to everybody I possibly can. Notice who the obligation is to. To those to whom He's preaching. He is obligated to those who haven't heard. His obligation is to them because He has received from God the grace of life. He has had His eyes open. The scales have been wiped away. He's seen Himself as a sinner. He has fallen upon the cross. He's recognized Jesus Christ as the only Son of God. The exclusive way of salvation. And having received that, He is now obligated to tell others. Look in your notes at 2 Corinthians 5. Listen to what Paul says here. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to Himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to Himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us 
the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making His appeal through us. Paul sees himself as under obligation, having received the gospel of salvation from God. He has no choice. He's obligated to deliver that gospel of salvation to everyone else. You know what I, I think that we often tend to think like? I, I, I think that we tend to allow ourselves to, to begin thinking that as we witness and minister to others, that we're doing them a favor. You, you think that maybe sometimes we think like that? That in my ministry to you, if you're a lost person or an unchurched person or whatever, as I reach out to you and try to share the gospel with you, that I'm kind of doing. I'm sort of going above and beyond. But what Scriptures teach us is that this is not something, this is not a goal for us to achieve. This is not a favor that we do. This is an obligation that we are under. We're obligated. Being recipients of the Gospel of life, we're obligated to then take that Gospel to all that we may possibly 